The following program was recorded live from the Women's Health Annual Visit. This year marked the 10th anniversary of the CME series, which provides continuing medical education to healthcare professionals on the topic of women's health. Celebrate a decade of Omnia Education's Women's Health Annual Visit by registering for an upcoming program in a city near you. Visit www.omniaeducation.com. You're listening to ReachMD, and we're here live at the 10th anniversary of the Omnia Education Women's Health Annual Visit, and thought this would be a good opportunity to review the medical breakthroughs that's happened in the last 10 years when we're looking at women's health. With me today is Dr. Andrea Singer, Associate Professor at Georgetown University Hospital, and Dr. Thomas Wright, who specializes in pathology and cell biology from Columbia University. Welcome to you both. Let's first start off with cardiovascular medicine. What have been the biggest advances in women's health when we're looking at heart health, Dr. Singer? I think the biggest advances in women's health from a cardiovascular standpoint are just recognizing the fact that cardiovascular disease is the number one killer in women and that we need to pay attention to this. We've always thought about cardiovascular disease in men. Women tend to lag about 10 years behind, but they suffer from all of the same issues. In terms of the cardiovascular field in general, there are better clot-busting drugs, there are drug-eluting stents, so we have better ways to treat coronary artery disease. And I think the other thing that's ever-evolving and is really brand new are changing guidelines, both in terms of hypertension management, in terms of JNC8 now, and also in terms of lipid management, and those are things that people need to pay attention to because they are changing even as we speak. Dr. Wright, let's turn to you about the advances in HPV. There have been huge advances in HPV over the last decade since we started the Women's Health Annual Visit Program. I think the biggest one are the new vaccines. Back in 2007, we got a vaccine, in fact, two vaccines which are capable of preventing the majority of cervical cancers. This field has actually evolved, and within the next year, we expect to get approval from the FDA for a vaccine that will prevent 98% of cervical cancers, a huge advance. In addition, HPV testing has made large advances. Back 10 years ago, we were only using HPV testing as a way of determining which women with ASCUS needed colposcopy. Well, that's evolved. We now have co-testing where women 30 years and older get tested with both HPV and cytology, much more sensitive, a much higher negative predictive value, and women who are negative on both tests don't need to be screened for another five years. And probably the most exciting thing is that just this year, several months ago, we got approval for the first time for HPV for primary cervical cancer screening, where women 25 and older will get screened using HPV alone. So HPV has just had huge advances over the last decade. Dr. Singer, can we now switch to sexual dysfunction? From a sexual health point of view, I wish I could sort of follow Tom by saying that we had had huge advances in terms of something that was now FDA approved to treat women with hypoactive sexual desire disorder or desire problems in general or some of the other dysfunctions that are there. Unfortunately, that's not been the case. There are some things in the pipeline which are still being embroiled sort of in FDA and other controversy. 
But I think the sheer fact that over the past 10 years we've started talking about sexual dysfunction from a female perspective is absolutely in advance. Nobody previously had really been concerned with female sexual health. It was really sexual health in regard to family planning, either planning for pregnancy or avoiding pregnancy, fertility issues. But now the fact that women's sexual health conferences makes the headlines, I think, is an important advance. There have been a couple of new drugs that have been approved also to treat vulvovaginal atrophy and some of the changes that come with menopause. So that really has also been an advance. And I hope that in the next 10 years, we will see the field continue to change. Well, another hot topic that we face everyday challenges in treating patients is obesity. Was it 10 years ago, the shifts in thinking, treatment options? Obesity remains a huge issue in the United States. And I think the recognition that childhood obesity is a problem Uh, which leads to adult obesity is something that has really just come to the forefront in the past 10 years. Now, up until 2012, we had had no new medications approved for almost 20 years. And so for the first time, there are a couple of new pharmacologic agents that are available. Obviously, issues still remain in terms of insurance coverage and how all of this can be taken care of from a financial perspective. But there are options for treatment Bariatric surgery has ballooned in terms of the number of cases that are done, the different techniques that can be used, and just the recognition, I think, that is brand new and is now evolving. The AMA, just in 2013, recognized obesity as a disease and a chronic disease at that. So the paradigm is shifting in terms of how we view obesity and what this will mean for the future in terms of diagnosis and treatment. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD. I'm your host, Ana Maria Rosario, and I'm speaking with Dr. Thomas Wright and Dr. Andrea Singer. Why don't we shift now our attention to uh, breast cancer? Breast cancer has had also huge advances over the last 10 years. In fact, the way we treat women today with breast cancer bears little resemblance to how it was treated even a decade ago. A decade ago, many women were still getting mastectomies. Today, most women get much more minimal surgery. They're getting lumpectomies. In addition to doing lumpectomies and many more patients, we now have the whole field of oncoplastic surgery, where we re-sculpt breasts after large lumpectomies are done. And we will even work on the opposite breast in order to give symmetry to the breast, giving women a much better feeling of wellness. Radiation therapy has made huge advances in the last decade. Intraoperative radiation therapy now is frequently done where all of the radiation is given after the lumpectomy. So a woman doesn't have to keep coming back for radiation therapy. Far fewer complications than with previous types of radiation therapy. And the most exciting area is in targeted therapeutics. Today, when a breast cancer gets removed in the operating room, the pathology laboratory does molecular characterization of the cancer, allowing us to do targeted therapies. The one that everyone is aware of is use of Herceptin, which is a monoclonal antibody against the HER2 new. This is in about 25% of women will receive benefit from getting this. But there are all sorts of iterations of monoclonal antibodies. We now have monoclonal antibodies against vascular endothelial growth factor. 
which are allowing us to stop angiogenesis and prevent growth. We've also got new targeted therapeutics against proteins such as mTOR, which are cell proliferation markers. So there's huge advances which have taken place in breast cancer, and we expect there to be major survival benefit from these advantages as we move forward. I think the other thing that has changed a little bit and is a little bit difficult to talk to in a very short time period but is the whole controversy surrounding screening, which continues to evolve in terms of the age at which to start mammograms, the frequency with which to do it, is there an age at which we should stop? And if we look to different society guidelines and different bodies that sort of advise us in terms of clinical guidelines and practice, there's some disparity there in terms of what those recommendations are. So we'll have to continue to watch to see where that goes in the next 10 years. Let's shift our attention now to osteoporosis. Osteoporosis, you know, we often refer to as a silent disease because for most women and men, but most women, there are no symptoms until someone has a fracture. Fracture has really become the focus of the osteoporosis field in that people who have a first fracture are at significant risk for future fractures. And so the way the field is shifting is to really focus on secondary fracture prevention. That is, recognize the group of patients who are at highest risk for future fracture, make sure that we are offering them diagnostic testing, treatment where appropriate, and that we work as multidisciplinary teams, often in the setting of a fracture liaison service, to identify them at the time of a fracture and then channel them through the correct pathways. Over the past 10 years, there have also been a couple of new pharmacologic agents that have been approved. There are several more that are in phase two and three trials and hopefully will be approved in the future. This is a disease that remains underdiagnosed and underrecognized. So anything that we can do to increase the rates of screening for women who are at risk and who need to be screened to improve treatment rates and compliance, I think is something that we will need to look to in the next 10 years. Why don't we now, before we wrap up, think about, since we're at a live educational symposium, talk about education and how it's shifted in the last 10 years for you and your colleagues. Education really is changing from large live meetings where the audience would sit and listen to much more interactive types of educational venues. We now use audience response. There's a lot more audience participation in the live meetings. But live meetings actually are becoming less important. Much more is taking place online. I get most of my CME online today, whereas 10 years ago, I got all of my CME at live meetings or departmental conferences. Learning times have shortened. People want very short 10-minute sorts of interviews. They want 10 minutes of information being given to them. Small, manageable packets. I'm sure Dr. Singer has lots to say about this also. No, I would agree with what Tom has said just in terms of that shift. And I think the fact that we're broadcasting and this will be available on ReachMD and that for many of our conferences, they're simulcast on ReachMD so that people can either listen in live or sort of do on-demand learning whenever it's convenient for them. I think that's made a huge difference in terms of the availability of CME credits being able to sort of tailor one's needs directly in terms of the areas and perhaps disease states and other things that they feel they need the most. Well, thank you both for being with us here today. I'd like to thank Dr. Andrew Singer and Dr. Thomas Wright. Thank you for both for being here today. Pleasure. Pleasure. 
I'm your host, Ana Maria Rosario, and you've been listening to ReachMD. To download this podcast and others in this series, please visit ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to ReachMD. This program was sponsored by Omnia Education and was recorded live from the 10-year anniversary kickoff of the Women's Health Annual Visit CME Series. Celebrate a decade of Omnia Education's Women's Health Annual Visit by registering for an upcoming program in a city near you. Visit www.omniaeducation.com.